Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm going to take a short break from my usual three-course meal of sass for a fairly important Agora-related announcement. As you know, Agora helps me make the financials of this podcast work out by hosting this show for free in return for advertising. Given that we have all made commitments to not let advertising interfere with our shows, it can sometimes be a challenge to sell ourselves to advertisers. Advertisers, generically, want us to use mid-roll ads, ideally multiple ones, the kinds that give advertising and podcasts a bad name. We do not want to do that, and honestly for me it would be a deal-breaker. One way we can fight against this is if we have the data about you, our audience, that we can use to help advertisers understand the value that we are bringing to the table. You are not generic listeners. You are history podcast listeners, and, I might add, rather good-looking ones. So for this month, instead of pitching a specific podcast, we Agorites are asking our listeners to go take a survey about your listening habits. It is much less fun than the one I asked you to take a few months back, but it is way more important. Seriously, it would do us all a huge favor if you would do it for us. It won't take more than five minutes. If you go to the website uh, with the blog post for this episode, I'm going to have a link there to the survey, because of course it's a URL for a survey, so it's this really long string thing. Don't worry about it. Just go to the website, click on the thing, take the survey, five minutes. Please, it would help us out. One other item of housekeeping before we get to thanking the donors, I'm very happy to announce that I will be moving at the end of August. I'm telling you this for two reasons, uh, one from your perspective and one from mine. First, from your perspective, there shouldn't be any interruption to the usual schedule. The stars have aligned pretty well for this, and I got a bit ahead on the work for the episodes between now and September, so we should be fine. But just in the off chance that there's an interruption, I just wanted to prepare you for the shock. Oh, and while we're on the subject of future shows, remember to get me any questions you have uh, by October so I can include them in the yearly birthday month extravaganza. Getting to this uh, nice and ahead of time so you guys can get me your questions, but we do have a bunch of other stuff planned out, so it's going to be a fun month in October. The second reason I wanted to tell you about my move, the one that's more from my perspective, uh, this place is going to be a bit more expensive than my current one. It will be well worth it, for reasons that I have already elaborated in this show, but it will make the budget a bit tighter. To those of you who have already become patrons, a huge thank you. 
It's a cliche at this point for a podcaster to say that they never expected their show to be a success, but I really, really did not think that your generosity could ever help me out with real-life financial problems, right? Um, so, uh, you have already helped me out intensely, and we haven't even hit the $200 mark, which was the goal for the move. Uh, for those of you who have not yet become patrons, uh, I would just like to add the enticement that I am mulling over some new content and gifts for patrons if we cross that magical $200 mark. Uh, hitting that mark will really, really help my family, and I want to do something to convey our gratitude. But I think the less said now, the better. Uh, the surprise will be greater, and everyone will appreciate it more. So, thank you for everyone who's become patrons in the past. Um, we're about to thank the patrons for this month, and for future patrons, uh, there's some added goodies there to incentivize it. Again, thank you to everybody, and if you're just listening, that's great too. Thank you for listening. So, we come to the patrons for this month. Which means, of course, that it's time to get back into our usual snark entree with a nice cold glass of sarsaparilla on the side. Let us begin. This month we have Tom, known henceforth as Lord Tom, the Napoleon of Eastmont. We shall also bestow honors upon Earl Joe, the horrifically sainted. Ooh, bad luck there, Joe. And last, but not least, we do praise Sir Paul Goodposture, the unslouching. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all my patrons, past, present, and future, and to all of you for listening. It has made a huge difference. And now, on with the show. Brilliant though it was, and despite its resounding moral effect, an isolated feat of arms like the Battle of Lechfeld would clearly not have sufficed to put an end to the raids. The Hungarians, whose own territory had not been touched, were far from having undergone such a crushing defeat as the Avars had early at the hands of Charlemagne. The defeat of one of their bands, of which several had already been likewise vanquished, would have been powerless to change their mode of life. The truth is that, from about 926, the long-distance raids, though furious as ever, were nonetheless becoming more infrequent. In Italy, without battle, they always ceased after 954. In the southeast, from 960 on, the incursions into Thrace dwindled in the modest little freebooting ventures. There is no doubt at all that this was a result of a number of deep-seated causes which had by degrees become effective. Quote from Feudal Society by Mark Bloke as read by Der Budler, the mad genius behind the Secret Cabinet podcast. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. So, greetings everyone. This is Benjamin Jacobs from Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. And with me today is Travis Dow from, amongst other things, the History of Germany podcast. Yeah. Hey. Yay. <laughs> we just finished in, on my show going through a sort of a history of the beginning of what you could call the, the Holy Roman Empire. 
and towards the end of it, the, the big climactic set piece was the, the Battle of Augsburg. And then we went on and did the, the aftermath. And I just wanted to uh, come back to it and sort of discuss the historiography of the battle and its its relevance, uh, its importance, and how history has viewed it. Because it's, it's one of these events that can definitely slip into hagiography, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I, I do think it's extremely important. And Travis, you, you've covered a bunch of these same events on the history of Germany, and I know both of us obviously think it's important because we covered it on our shows. So I wanted to uh, have this discussion today so we could get into a little bit more detail, go beyond just the narrative and, and start talking about what the battle means. And, and on my show, one of the things I'm trying to kind of show in general is that there was just a steady progression from the various Germanic tribes to the Holy Roman Emperor. And, and there's, you know, Charles the Great and, and Otto the Great, who we'll talk about. But even from like, you know, the, the Franks were trying to be Roman and the, the Saxons were trying to be Frankish. And then when the, the new Frankish dynasty came, they were carrying on all the Saxon traditions. And it's interesting because, yeah, so for the most part, I'm just like, oh, well, you know, this and that kind of changed, but really not much changed as a whole. It's kind of, you know, the, this like these pivotal events in history, kind of you go from one pivotal event or one pivotal person like Charles the Great to where everything changes and then it's a new era, it's a new epoch, and then, you know, everything changes a couple hundred years later. And of course, that's not at all what happened. You you see a right. gradual, gradual change. If you're Sorry, living in the 10th century, you lived in fear and you lived in fear about what we're going to talk about today. And after a very victorious battle, whether it was, you know, um, exaggerated or not, or how much of it was propaganda or not, it was kind of, I can make the argument that it was the birth of Germany. It was the stopping of the Hungarian or the Magyar like harassment. And so it was kind of this sense of peace and safety, but I could also make the the opposite argument. So, you know, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure we will both do both. Yeah. Yeah. So with that teaser, I, I, we've both covered this on our shows fairly recently, um, at least in terms of the feed. A quick refresh, though, about what we're talking about with the Battle of Augsburg or the Battle of Lechfield, depending on uh, who you talk to, I guess. Um, would you want to bring us in on uh, who Otto is really quickly? Sure. And- yeah. So in Germany, especially, he's Otto the Great. So there's like Charles the Great and then Otto the Great. And he's not a dynasty founder. His father kind of laid the groundworks, or grandfather even, and all that. But Otto's the ones that cement, you know, from Charles the Great up into the Ottonian dynasty. It was Frankish rulers. And Holy Roman Empire, Germany, did not exist yet. Okay, so they were still calling it East Francia. We just, in the Saxon dynasty, start to hear mentions of Holy Roman Empire... Like there's the king of the Germans, but as far as like Germany, it's it's a very gradual yeah. change. So we're and still course, talking about East Francia. Since we're actually writing in Latin and and German, they don't actually call it Germany. They they call it the king of the Teutons. Or yeah, or like, so that's that's an important point to make. So one of the critical things about Lechfeld in general is that okay, so everybody just like uh, the the previous dynasty, everybody agreed. So the four main tribes, uh, there's the Bavarians, the Swabians, the Franks and the Saxons. Okay. And they've all agreed on this king or this emperor. There is and already before. So it's not like this, you know, Otto's the first by any means. There is a title of Holy Roman Emperor floating around. And then some some kings just is kind of somewhere in Italy, someone holds that title. And then (laughs) the Germans have to go down to Rome and get it again. Otto, Otto is a great example of that. But, but at this point, he's just king of the Germans. And he does a bunch of 
things that are different than the Franks. Like when you talk about Charles the Great, it's like, well, why did he split it up amongst his three kids? And um, <laughs> well, he so he, the Saxons really tried to stop that. But that's, I think we've both talked about that. But, yeah, yeah. but that's, that was hard to stop. It didn't happen overnight. But including Otto's brothers, obviously, were like, well, wait a minute, you know, why are you the only king? So there's, there's that. And then across all the dynasties, this whole period of European history, everything is kind of related to like, well, how did this king, how did the Pope like this king? And how did the, you know, how much power did the emperor have in appointing bishops and, and all of that? Long story short, Otto was kind of instrumental in setting up or really like cementing the, well, it's like the trifecta of the church, nobility, and the, the com- right. everybody else, the common man. Because he, he had to deal with the stem duchy system. And so he started... Yep using the the clerics as a way to run both the bureaucracy and then also setting them up as sort of like a counterbalance. And there's no way that that could be a problem because, of course, the emperor is supposed to be appointing bishops. Yes, if we (laughs) talk about Otto's grandchildren or even Conrad in the next (laughs) dynasty, suddenly uh, they're not related to any of the bishops anymore and suddenly it's a thorn in their side. But in Otto's days, so you have to be, it's like just a couple generations difference. In Otto days, he gave power to the church left and right and and use that as leverage so the church supported him they loved him and and they were very powerful like economic and political might in otto's reign it, he made the church stronger and other his grandchildren have to deal with a church that is much too strong for them to deal with now if we get into oh this is the birth of germany and this and that now otto very much and i i really stress this on my show otto wanted to be seen as in the footsteps of charlemagne so otto would say he was the east frankish ruler and just uh, the legal successor of of Charles the Great. Um, right. That's so. There's. It's not a big shift. It's not a new epoch. You know. That's the counter argument. It's like yeah. if you ask Otto, he's like, no, no, no. I'm. You know. I'm. I'm one of the old school kind of thing. Right. Well, um, well one of the interesting things is that yeah. he didn't push that. I mean, he was definitely pulling off of the the Carolingian legal tradition, and you know, East Francia was like obviously a relations. rump state. Yeah. Yeah. But then at the same time, we had Louis the Fourth floating around in Western Francia, mm-hmm. who was a direct male line descendant of Charlemagne. Yeah. So Otto actually couldn't like be look at me i'm the descendant of charlemagne because he wasn't yeah <laughs> and it was only you know otto the third who started after the last of the, the carolingians had been booted out yes. in the in western francia then all of a sudden it was like charlemagne this charlemagne that and here's a story about my grandfather going into charlemagne's tomb yeah and also <laughs> otto the second or otto the great was somehow related to i mean there was blo- i mean they were well, everybody yeah. was related to charlemagne first of yeah all. so I, I everybody mean, the, the, had some <laughs> relative title to the yeah but Otto already arranged he was looking to like okay uh, another way to get legitimacy is to get the Byzantines on board because they were right. kind of also the heir to the Roman Empire so he found Teofanu who then married Otto II and so then it was like oh he has Frankish blood he's the son of Otto the first which really Teofanu was like the cousin of a courtier i mean you know it wasn't the empress's daughter or or sister anything yeah but everyone was too polite to say anything at that point because if you say anything then it's like well we got duped and she was actually great (laughs) like yeah the more i read about her the more i I liked her as a person like she was she was an interesting person to have in like medieval germany among these saxon kind of 
one of the big things for me from telling the story was how interesting the women were actually yeah. in general. I mean, Adelaide was like a rock star. Adelaide and like, <laughs> like everybody's dead. Everybody's dead except her. And she's battling like some other old, who was it? Like Tunk Mars? It, it was, I, it I was don't Bering, remember, but yeah. It was Berengar II of Italy. Oh, okay. He was, yeah. Like, you know, the grandson of the last dungeon. emperor. Oh, <laughs> yeah point is that like adelaide yeah so that you know adelaide of italy so you do have that italian connection right. you do have that imperial connection also later marches down to rome like they all have right. to and and gets crowned so right. yeah but the so the point is is like yeah he's carrying on a tradition it's part propaganda part public relations but um yeah well it's it, almost like institutional legal inertia it's like if the congress just blew up and no one bothered replacing it. But all the machinery of the United States just kept clicking along. The police were still down the street. You kept voting for mayor. Like, and it's doubly so because the institutions that were sort of molded into the Frankish Empire, a lot of them had come out of the Roman, the real Roman mm-hmm. Empire. Yeah. And so it's this, this double continuity of just gradual evolution going on, half of which we don't even really understand because it wasn't being documented. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You also got to figure... I mean, they were pretty good at communication, and the king definitely had some power over their, all their realm. That's why it didn't get too big. But but especially in the early days, they're always traveling, and like I wonder, like, do they yeah. even know where the king was at all times? Like he's just <laughs> off with his entourage or the the yeah. court, really, and set up shop in a field somewhere and some poor nobleman's castle that had to feed the whole bunch. It was like a mafia. It was like the Godfather oh, totally, going yeah. from shop to well, shop. And the so. whole institution of the diet with the the imperial elections that they became so formal later on during the empire. But mm-hmm. with Charlemagne, it's just like, everybody who can hear me, show up at a diet. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And Charlemagne especially just would talk to anybody. You know, I like to rule outside. I, I thought it was interesting that like Otto, I mean, when did they start to, so the, the old, the old Saxons, it was like warrior equals person that can carry sword or warrior equals right. person that can ride a horse. No, nobility especially was like, that was kind of the Frankish thing, I think, was, uh, you know, it's a, it's a rider. And then it's kind of like, you have these kings that can't even get on horses anymore anymore and it's like yeah there, there's clearly a slow uh, evolution of you know growing up in these bigger and bigger palaces and you know seeing less and less of the common folk um, yeah we're not there yet in the story this is still 10th century no, no, no. they're still pretty yeah. horseback and going going from village to village we should point that out so it's still the mafia um, godfather days let's put it, it that way in terms of the Battle of Augsburg, the immediate background was that there was a civil war, because of course there was, with Otto's son actually leading the war, uh, along with uh, an archbishop and Otto's son-in-law, Conrad. And they have this big civil war, and it totally got out of control of everybody, because Otto's reforms in terms of some of the things he was doing to screw with the, the stem duchy system, yeah. they seem to have been you know, annoying the minor nobility and the, the peasants. And so when, uh, when a civil war broke out, just the entire every stem duchy half of them were fighting the other half and it wasn't good neat boundaries it's always Mm -hmm. you know me screwing with my neighbor to get some sort of uh score settled yeah the stem duchies almost become like political parties that yeah can never there's uh, yeah it's it's just yeah it's like a stalemate in congress at some point where they're just battling (laughs) each other and the emperor's like hey wait a minute guys there's a (laughs) wait a minute we're supposed to all be on the same side Right. Yeah. But then when uh, when the Hungarians started raiding again, everything cleaned up really quick. Everybody sort of drew together. Uh, Otto and Conrad tied things up, and then Leodolf was eventually forced into tying things up. And then the next year, the Hungarians came again, figuring that they were still going to be dealing with a bunch of disunited people at each other's throats, only to find... <laughs> yeah. 
let me let me set the scene for a second because kind of I mean I love this I love reading about this time period because it's the 10th century and in medieval Europe it's almost like it was the end of times not <laughs> so the belief that that the millennium would be the last day and the second coming of Christ and all that that's actually a little bit uh, exaggerated because no one really even agreed. I mean, these are farmers. So no one really yeah. agreed when New Year's Day was. Most yeah. thought it was Easter, but but some thought it was some other time. And I had an entire like twenty minute thing in one of my episodes about timekeeping in the Middle yeah. Ages and how none of the monasteries could agree what so, day it was. Yeah, go to a village, ask a farmer what year it is. Yeah, <laughs> they might have a rough idea, but they're not going to be like, "Oh, it's nine nine nine. You know, I better no. I mean, it really, you know, it just wasn't that common knowledge. They were, or it just wasn't as big of a worry as as some people might kind of think. But however, that being said, it was okay. Ignore everything I just said. People thought the world was going to end. Hungarians were the ant, like the the demons of the Antichrist or the armies of the Antichrist, because the Hungarians raided fifty times in the last, let's say, century and got as far as the Rhine. So you know, they, as, they as got far a lot farther than Germany, that. They got they got as far as Cadiz in Spain. Okay, they well, completely okay. yeah. cleared the decks in Europe. There was yeah. just there was no place period, there was that was nothing. safe. No, yeah, no place that yeah. that. So any village could be like, oh well, maybe this year the you know the wind blows the Hungarians this way. It was really just like an yeah. act of God. So fear and oh, it was. I mean, yeah, it really was a horrible kind of time yeah. to be a peasant. And fortifications did get bigger and bigger just to kind of fight off. Well, because yeah, Hungarians weren't great at sieges. They were really great at like open battle because of their famous archers and the compound bows and all that stuff um, and it should be said also that the vikings and the saracens were coming in from different yeah. directions too oh yeah otto otto had his handful all of europe had had their handful at this point yeah it's, and it's when that and time. when and when there weren't outside raiders the nobility was killing each other mm -hmm. just for fun yeah and because of that fact that's what makes it so interesting. So, I mean, I was just rewatching a documentary on Set Day F that I had watched probably last year to, for my show. And even even now, even today, they, they're calling it the birth hour of Germany. When <laughs> four, all four tribes sent armies and it, Otto ended up leading like 12,000 troops and they were ready. They had special shields for the arrows. They were heavily armored. So now we're talking like proper medieval, you know, knights in shining armor kind of, kind of thing. Because yeah. that means a, something. Thing. Every, every gener that went that was a fashion trend. So every twenty yeah. years, a knight in shining armor means something totally different. Yeah. But, <laughs> but okay, but they were heavily armored. You know, kind of what we would think of as a hev heavily armored knight, and but not always on horseback. Sometimes they were on foot yes. but, and with huge shields. And so eh, okay, but still, you know, they they were ready and they were all gathered. And they even they were like, oh, they want to fight us on open field. Good, you know. And then there's all these yeah. little myths and things well, and stuff. And, and we'll get well, into the, that. But and the fact that Conrad actually showed up. You know, that wasn't a given yes, after the yeah. fact that they'd been fighting a civil war for the last like three years. But the yeah. fact that he did show up was just like, so yeah, all, okay, now we're ready together. to go. Uh, Otto, I, one thing I have to mention straight off the bat, because this is so cool. Otto was carrying the Holy Lance. You know, the right. yes. uh, what, what was the Roman soldier's name? The Lance of... The Lance of Longinus. Yes. Longinus, yeah. So the, this is for those that have no idea what we're talking about. I think you, you mentioned it on your show, but I've, I've mentioned it on like Bohemian. And every time it pops up, I'm like, oh, by the way, that's still... You can go see it in Vienna. It's in the Schatzkammer in Vienna. And you'll see a... It's kind of fixed with golden... What? Like golden tinfoil sort Sort of thing and it's kind of tied up with golden wire or something that's because charles the fourth who uh 
picked Prague as his capital, but we're talking like 14th century, so 400 years in the future from Otto. He broke it. He was like kind of looking at it, playing with it or something, and he broke it in half. And he's like, <laughs> oh, whoops. So they fixed it with gold. But Otto, on the feast day of Longinus, he took the Holy Lance and he carried it into battle. And I just love that story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just so that like that relic, like I've just talked about that relic so many times on my on my show. And yeah. here, you know, here, here it is again, this time with Otto. Right. So, I mean, just to, to cut a long story short, they attack the Magyars. The Magyars, like, outflank them. Mm-hmm. But then uh, uh, Otto orders Conrad to uh, come to the assistance of the, the troops that have gotten outflanked. And Conrad gathers together his horsemen, which is very important, mm-hmm. and rides around the entire army and hits the Magyars in the rear. And uh, they're all tired from already fighting all day, and they have to cross back across a river to get away, and they get slaughtered. And yeah. uh, a dozen uh, Magyar uh, noblemen are hung before the gates of the city and mm-hmm. uh and it's a, a huge triumph and then uh i believe the next day otto found out that the slavs were raiding and he takes his army and moves off <laughs> and off he goes to, to the next challenge yeah. yeah now okay now that's actually that was a very factual <laughs> telling of the story because there's all kinds of legends <laughs> around it like did uh, did you come across the because corvi doesn't mention it uh, you know video kint of corvi but but right. there's the um I don't think he does, but but there's a lot of other sources, probably written a century or two later, that said right. this 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 summer storm suddenly came up, and then that's that it rained so heavily just for a little bit, but the Hungarians couldn't keep their bows dry, right. and the feathers came off the the arrows, and the, because they're they're compound bows, the layers kind of dissolved, something you know mm-hmm. something like that, and it was like this miraculous act of God, or perhaps right. just a storm. But then some of the sources, contemporary sources, don't mention it at all. All, you right. know so and then that's one of those things where well maybe you wouldn't mention it if you only won because of the rain but then on the other hand it's like well <laughs> were you carrying the spear of longinus so wouldn't that be seen as like oh longinus helped you or god helped you because you had that holy relic i mean yeah i mean you know either way yeah. i guess yeah well and then the other the other famous events are of course the speeches given before the battle right. one by the bishop of ulm i believe and one by or uh, of augsburg i don't know and and um, one by otto himself Right. So the Bishop of Olmo uh, was, I think he was sent by Otto to take control of the garrison because he knew that that's where the the Magyars were going to end up. And so it was like shoot some people into the city to make sure it stands while you gather the army kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't let the city fall while we're... Yeah, right. Yeah, now, and, and that one, I believe, is the Bishop of Olms gave the Lord's Prayer as a battle cry. Right. Or, you know, as a, as right. a like, pep speech. Right. And I think that's true, because I heard that in a lot of different things. But then, the, like, Otto gave this one um, to his soldiers, and I think that might have not happened at all. Like, every general right. kind of gave a speech to their own men, but somehow there's this really famous speech that has and goes, yeah, that probably never happened at all, or you know, it was written like a century later. Yeah. But um, yeah, as far as I, I came across some questions somewhere, that was like, you know, what are the great, you know, how you have in the movie like today's Independence Day, and right. you know, there's <laughs> so like what, you know, which which ones were real, and uh, a lot of them are. Yeah. Like the ones in the well, Crusades I mean, or the ones in the Hundred Year yeah. War. It's like, well, they're actually written like 200 years later. And who well, knows? Even the and, ones that are written by contemporary chroniclers. I mean, there's no yeah. way that Leoprand of Cremona was actually at the battle writing down what everyone writing was saying. Writing down what or, he said. Or that 12,000 <laughs> men heard Otto or... Yeah, I mean... Yeah. yeah. Anyways, a... but, but but it's romantic. The legends yeah, are great. Yeah, of course. If you take it all together, it's just such a great story. And I, yeah. and I don't want to like debunk all that and be like, oh, you know, it didn't happen. But... but uh, 
yeah. I mean, because that's that's what I was taught in school. I was, you know, cause, oh yes. So the listeners that don't know me, like I went to school in in Germany in Munich. So I mean, that's that's the version we were taught was the the romantic version of like, oh, is this and this and this, and then they defeated the Hungarians so bad that they were never really a threat again. Right. Hmm, okay. Well, that's one end. Of, that's one end of the spectrum as far as what happened. But yeah, and, it's a great know, story. The, yeah. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. By contrast, in in the English speaking world, at least for me, going to school in the United States, the Battle of Augsburg, the Battle of Lechfield, completely not mentioned in oh, any yeah. context. In any I would way. be surprised. Yeah. yeah. And of course, everyone really focuses. If you get any instruction on medieval history, you get the Battle of Hastings, and always yeah. the Battle of Hastings, which is only a few years after, uh, you know, a couple generations, a couple decades yeah. after. The more I've learned about the Battle of Augsburg, the more contempt I hold the Battle of Hastings in, because none of that stuff actually happened at the Battle of Hastings. Say what you will about the Battle of Augsburg, and we will. Uh, at least Otto I was, was fighting say, yeah, the Magyars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the real battle sh- that everyone talks about in school should be the Battle of Stirling Bridge, which was the last major Viking raid, and it happened a couple weeks before Hastings. There's this whole muddled view of this time period, and it, a lot of it depends on, you know, what language you speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I mean, I, every yeah, because even even Hungarians themselves, they'll pick a hundred years in the future. When was Stephen the first? It was like ten something, yeah. or yeah. So yeah. if I'm not mistaken, yeah. So so I mean, the Hungarians themselves be like, oh yeah, and a century later, you know, we Christianized. That's when that's when we moved out of the Dark Ages and into the High Middle Ages. Right. And I, you know, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, but but I think it's just because you know the year one thousand is such a nice round number, and you <laughs> want to pick one within a grandfather father away you know either before right. or after of like this pivotal moment that right. you know blah 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 well it gets so. into the question of, of how you do these divisions in time which is actually one of the things i wanted to talk about in this episode so we can introduce it here you need these divisions in time just to be able to know what you're talking about it, it, well it's a shortcut yeah it's a helpful short it's a helpful shortcut because right. everything i'm going to say from here on out is like totally disagreeing with the whole idea that we need that. However, of course it is. If you're learning yeah. history, you want to put things in like relative order. And, you know, I was the, okay, you know, what's antiquity? What's the classical age? What's the, it really does help you put one thing after the other as far as just yeah. getting the whole thing straight in your head. Okay, just, sure. Now that being just, said, <laughs> go ahead. As you, get to, as you get to those border areas, you start to be like, well, what are we basing this on? And it's, yeah. it's usually, you want to tie it to something and it's some sort of social process or whatever some sort of political institution but ultimately these things don't have neat boundaries and so we always end up you know historians end up arguing endlessly over these boundary lines that they themselves will admit are somewhat arbitrary things that they picked out of convenience (laughs) yep i mean to give an example there's the otonian renaissance and there's the carolingian renaissance and both of those things started before, okay, I mean, Charlemagne did what he did. Like, he really did set some gears in motion, for sure. But still, like, the monasteries were already doing that stuff before, and then he just kind of mainstreamed it, and they just kept on doing it yeah. after. It's not like one one king could do that much, because we really are talking like a godfather with a gang of yeah. a couple hundred uh, horsemen, you know, and, right. and their entourage. So, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> It can't. It can't possibly have happened that way. And even, and even right. Lechfeld is like, okay, so you know Hastings was like, oh well, it's a dynasty change. You know, the Normans come and and you know the the Anglo Saxons are it's over with. And eh, yeah, right, okay. But but it, with Lechfeld, you say, oh well, it was this this great heathen danger that came to an end. Right. All right. However, 
you know, the the Hungarians were already settling. They were already yeah. they they already there was actually more diplomacy and trade and this than the 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 black and white, you know, the middle the dark yeah. ages to the high middle ages would allow for. So right. if there's if you see evidence of that, then it kind of gets ignored. It's like, "Oh no, that's too right. early for them to be trading or that's too early to find like Christianized Hungarians." You know, so I mean, that's how that works. So in a way, it's right. like, well, actually, Lechfeld was, um, you know, everything kind of came together and it was the right place at the right time. And all the, you know, it was great that all the the four tribes actually sent people and Conrad showed up. And um, sure, it is, you know, history could have gone different ways, I, I'm sure. But it's kind of like Karl Martel beating the Saracens or beating the Moors coming up from Spain. Well, they were probably really on their last leg. And it might have been a yeah. tsunami, but that's just that's just as far as they got. And they were just about done. <laughs> you know, yeah, but being, of course, the, in, in Frankish the, history, that is the pivotal right. moment. Right. Which is just but, that's a know. great parallel to Leichfeld, actually. Like, yeah, actually. Yeah, we would probably because get emails it, if we didn't mention that. So. <laughs> It is a nice dividing line, though, because it is as oh, far sure. as they got. Yeah. But, you know, and, um, and if it's a mental shortcut, if it helps you kind of learn, oh, the Moors were a problem here and not here. And, you know, who's Charles, like Charles Martel and the Car- Carolingian uh, line or yeah. whatever, Carolingian line. You know, yeah. if you need a shortcut of where that started and the end of the previous dynasty, then, OK, that all helps. In fact, even dynasties is like, well, what does that really say? Who cares yeah. that they had a Saxon king instead of a Frankish king? Because well, four when- generations later, they're going to have a Frankish king again yeah and well what? and they're all relatives <laughs> yeah. they're all cousins <laughs> yeah you know exactly. it's by modern by modern norms we don't do male line succession anymore i mean there are a couple of royal families that still do but you know if you know i die the, my daughter inherits my assets and mm-hmm. it's not a big deal um <laughs> the, I, yeah when, when i know? do do when i do talk about i'll do a little mini series on bavaria at some point and i have to be a little bit careful because i i know I grew up in Bavaria, and and I know they're very proud of their heritage. Too proud. Bavarians are a little too proud of their (laughs) heritage. But the thing is, is that, in fact, Bavaria is basically a certain clan of Saxon tribesmen that were all sent over. And the peasants that live there are such a mix of everybody, plus uh, old Celtic DNA and even some Slavs that came over, um, you know, more than they'll admit to kind of thing. And it's like, there's no, you know, Bavarian, someone just like, oh, we'll call it that because the Romans called the Celtic tribe that. And yep, that's, yep, you're the, uh, you're the Duke of Bavaria now. Good good for you. But (laughs) the idea that, you know, the idea that there's any ethnic nationalism in Europe is just a joke. I mean... (laughs) Oh yeah. The the idea that you can base it on any kind of genetic reality is is oh, but silly. They, oh, but they try. I mean, not not in the sense of like oh the the Nazis and their Aryan stuff cuz yeah. yeah, that they clearly went too far. But even today if they if they're like from Franconia like Nuremberg or Regensburg or yeah. something, that you know, because they have a dialect it's just it seems like they were always there. But it's like, well, Franconia. Now wait a minute. The Frankish realm was more like by Belgium. So who are you calling right. Franks? They're like, we're not Bavarians. We're Franks. It's like, well, right. you're not the Frankish Franks. What What are you talking about? You know, like you're a Frankish well, march. It's... You're just like you're the you're the uh, like the backwoods of the Frankish Empire, and you just you're the you're the name that stuck because no one wanted to rename you. Of course, right. I can't say that, but you know, I'm well, about to go there a couple months. I'm going to go to Franconia and give a live show. I'm not going to say none of that stuff. But, um, well, you just did. Yeah. yeah, just tell them they're all Saxons. That's a great way to win over a, a Frankish crowd for sure. Anyways, yeah, what were we talking yeah. about? What are we talking about? What's the show about? 
Well, so okay, so we, there's a couple elements that let's let's just draw it together. There, there's some, a couple key elements in the modern understanding of the Battle of Augsburg. In the popular consciousness and in academia, the ramifications of the battle are that it was the last raid of the the Magyars. Right. Um, one big one is that it confirmed the role of armored cavalry in castles and fortifications mm-hmm. in warfare, which had social ramifications because, yep. of course, in order to afford an armored horse, you have to be an, uh, a yep. rich aristocrat. Uh, and then uh, solidified Otto's rule in Germany and Italy for centuries. Sort of as a buttress to that, there's always the question of, of how is it viewed at the time? You know, what are the actual wider social forces going on? And just some things we've already mentioned, and then I want to double back and dive into that a little bit more deeply. The Magyar raids had been on decline uh, on the wane since 926 or so. Um, Mark Bloch, who's one of my favorite historians, uh, notes that these kinds of long-distance raids were dubiously profitable. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Talking about trying to drag, like, huge trains of of slaves and booty back across the Alps. Well, that's how they got defeated. We didn't really (laughs) mention that, but that's how the Magyars got defeated, is they just loaded up. They raided the camp, loaded up, and then were too heavy to get away. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, really, the way that they were making most of their money is by serving as mercenaries in Italy Mm -hmm. and and places like that. And then these raids were just sort of, you know, yeah, there was a profit motive, but, you know, a lot of people died in them. A lot of people died of diseases. And it was, it may have been more, to to assign more of an intentionality than there probably was, it was more just buttressing their reputation so that then they could go and be like, we're the scary Magyars, you should hire us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yep, could, yeah. Even like, if you don't hire us, you know, well, how else are we going to make some money? Oh, well, that village looks nice. <laughs> yeah. But it, yeah, very opportunistic. It wasn't right. any sort of, yeah, like Grand overall stra- strategy, you know, so. On the flip side, the, the Hungarians, uh, the, the Magyars who became the Hungarians, were stuck on the, the Pannonian Plain in the Balkans, surrounded by enemies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they couldn't get out because they were also surrounded by mountains. And, and it was, you know, not that anything is inevitable, but sooner or later they were going to have to deal with that because the Avars didn't and they got ground down to dust. Yeah. So then the other thing is the, the cavalry and castles thing. Um, that had sort of started with Charlemagne. He was one of the first Frankish kings to start emphasizing the cavalry branch. Um, and even at the time of, of Henry the Fowler and Otto, it's not like we're talking about hereditary nobility serving as cavalry or anything. Right. They, they had... Uh, legal structures based on it, it being like every 10th man or every 12th man. Yes. That's serves. right. Yep. And then there's also like the Anglo-Saxon example that a lot of, you know, a lot of times you read the biographies of these Frankish Kings or the, the these Germanic Kings and it's, well, he was the first one to start emphasizing the cavalry and it's, well, no, he passed a law that had something to do with it. And if you're trying to draw out like where it all started, meanwhile, the Anglo-Saxons are up there. They're also starting to emphasize people riding horses, though they weren't, you know, actually See, fighting from horseback. It, it was always a no thing. Castles. I mean, yeah. that, it was never, it, I mean, it might, it might have been relatively emphasized or de-emphasized because kings might put like economic reforms in place to where there's enough horses, you know, right. but, but it, I mean, Romans had it and, and Celts, like horses were holy objects and, you know, kind of, I mean, just, you know, right. there was, there is this European culture around the horse that, right. Okay. I mean, just like I said, was it the Franks or the... Sa- I think it was the Franks, actually, that was like, you're a nobleman, you're a warrior if you can ride a horse. It was just kind of right. part of the culture anyways. 
Right. But sure. Yes. Some kings <laughs> furthered that. And, and yeah, it just, it just came down to like war tactics and, you know, depending on what the enemy did or who they were fighting, then with the Magyars, it made perfect sense to be on horseback, be heavily armored and have huge shield. Well, and when you're dealing with the Vikings who can just show up everywhere, you want to have your, your troops be mobile so yeah, that they can yep. spawn. Yep. You know, and then building castles. Well, you know, you want to fortify things because it's going to take the king a while to get there with the army. And meanwhile, your village has been burned down. So maybe you build a wall around the village. Maybe. And, yeah. Um, yeah. That's optional. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's actually an interesting contrast. In Italy, that's what they did. The encastlemento uh, in Italy was the villages themselves were fortified. And then whoever supplied the garrison of the village ended up running everything because you know mm-hmm. nobleman steve pays my salary so you i'm gonna listen to him and not what you want <laughs> so yeah and um, yeah the castles just like the towers in like northern italy the of the nobility like they'd build their ca- their towers on the town square and the castles right. anywhere in germany they kind of had the same purpose which was like nominally to defend the peasants against any foreign invasion. However, really, it was to defend themselves against any rebellion because it could get so horrible. It Um, was even more, even more basically, it's just holding the land. If you're there and you can't be killed, then when they run out of food and go away, you still hold the land. And that's what's important. Mm -hmm. Because that's what the social structure is that, you know, the, the rest of the economy has imploded. There's trade, but it's not really that important. The thing that you, you live on is extracting wealth from the peasantry. And, yeah. you know, and so you need to have that castle there. And, you know, having these times be unstable, historians have argued back and forth for years. Was it, you know, the Vikings or the Magyars, these raids that, you know, made it so that they could get away with it? Or were the nobles building it? to fight against each other or was it um you know just that the central government started to collapse and they could get away with it's, it and it's sort of like a combination of all these yeah, things yeah it's such a complicated and, it, and the the thing that people don't maybe consider enough is time because it's yeah. like you could take any little county and see how it changed over time to where probably everything is true at some point yes like at, at some point some place is very egalitarian they make like in uh Free, Frisia, Friesland. Frisia, I, I, yeah. I made an I made an episode where you know they were all just they were all poor. They were all you know just just trying to defend against the ocean, building the dikes and and yeah. water mills and all this at, at a very early time. And they just agreed that we had, had these market towns. They just agreed like no castle, no no stone houses over you know I don't know a couple stories and no right. basements at all because that could be a dungeon. I was just like, wow, they, they had laws against castles. Fast right. forward 200 years and there's a castle in every town. And you right. know, just the, the richest farmer, they, they started to change the word from like chieftain or first among equal to like, yeah, I'm the yeah. count of this place. Right. And, but that's, uh, yeah, and that that's... just happened across Europe at different rates for different reasons. And mm-hmm. um, and then you add the, the factor of the church, which is just vastly different in, in, from country to country. So... Yeah. yeah, the uneven pace of feudalization. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's like, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. And there was a whole lot of uh, polyphony, I guess, mm-hmm. <laughs> in this time period. There was similar things happening everywhere at different rates at yeah. different times. There was some, clearly some sort of social force going on. And a lot of it might have just been that the nobles were communicating and looking over each other's shoulders to see what worked. But yeah. then also, you know, at it the right time, times. they could, you know, all get yeah. together and com- just like at the Battle of Lechfield. So, you know, they could 
if they really had to, they might have woken up and been like, oh, you know, there's a bigger threat out there. Let's let's do something. We have touched on this, but in terms of how the battle was viewed at the time, there's a whole lot of stripping back to that actually requires wading through a whole bunch of propaganda and stuff from starting a few years after the battle and then getting more and more intense going going forward but you know at at the time as you've said i I think it's clear that the people who were there were like yes we've beaten the traditional enemy they also couldn't have known it was the last raid though i mean yeah well that so that's where all the weird legends come in is like okay so he did have the spear of longinus it was on the feast day it was so that there was this importance of about it for sure but he probably carried maybe he carried the spear with him every battle i mean you know and, <laughs> and they did do these like rituals and superstitious things and you know had the priest with him and you know was it really that and now just because it was ended up being pivotal then people look back at it and say oh you know and, and then you remember all the details not yeah. remembering that actually every battle has the same sort of trivia and details around right. it. Um, well, and then you you can't even necessarily trust your sources because some of them yeah. are writing like ten years later, twenty years later. I still get the sense that it was it was you know it was definitely a celebrated victory, and it was de- but but not no one would have called it a landmark event at the time. And it's like oh yeah. now we can now let's dismantle all the castles because peace has arrived. Yeah. <laughs> Not at all. Like you said, yeah. they just marched off to to go beat the the Slo- uh, the Slavic, you know, whoever yeah. was was, there was uh, an uprising up in the north somewhere. And, and was then, it even then... the great Slavic uprising? Was that Alto the first? That was Otto the second. Okay, I I, I, yeah, I, I think I actually made on, that. Mistake. I was like, wait, let me let me describe who these pagan Slavs are. He goes up and beats up the Slavs, and then like half his family dies, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, like most of his kids leaving only two-year-old out of the second. And then he goes and invades Italy, and all the stuff happens down there. And and one of the things that's interesting is that, you know, everyone says, well, part of the whole, the Magyars never raided again, was that, well, within five years, Otto also owned Italy. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so if you're the Magyars and you're like, well, where are we going to attack next? Well, the guy who just beat us up there is now also over there, so we can't go that way. Yeah, and then it kind of cut off Europe. Yeah, <laughs> and then you turn in the other direction, and the the Byzantines are in the middle of one of their going gangbusters uh, ascension periods. They, they'd conquered most of the Balkan Peninsula at that point, I mm-hmm. believe. And then the Rus are rising, and well, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. I mean, um, it, well, another thing I always wonder in is is so Otto's coronation was just seven years later. And I wonder, yeah. like, how predetermined was that, or was there any? Okay, because what I'm what I'm getting at is like Charles Martel, Martel got the title like Defender of the Church when right. he beat the the Moors, and that title's been passed around from Franks, especially ones that go off and fight Slavs or or Hungarians. Right. And I just wonder, like, okay, so Otto by beating the Hungarians, he was kind of the the de facto Defender of the Church, the one that's beating heathens and the Slavs. Right. So I don't know if there is but, an answer, but because yeah. then he marched and conquered Italy and it's just kind of like people did it well, before and after him, too. And they yeah. were crowned em- emperor. But um, but he also had all the all the other titles already. It was kind of like, well, what do you get for a guy who already has almost, everything? Yeah, it was almost like it was a given, <laughs> it, you know, it's like Charlemagne. Also, I it was like, well, was it all was it all spontaneous? Like it was like, no, no, no. The, the Pope asked for help before and the Pope yeah. talked to Charlemagne in person and then. You know, oh, I'm so surprised you crowned me. Nah, nah. <laughs> on Christmas but the Day. Thing with, the thing with that one, though, is that 
they were basically creating a new title. With Otto, there had been, right. you know, emperors of the Romans before. And, you that, know, it was that's just, a the good title point, had sort of been defunct yeah, since Charlemagne was like, he, he was like, oh, by the way, boy, the, I want nothing more in life than, hey, my birthday's coming up. I want nothing more in life than, boy, wouldn't it be cool if I was emperor? I mean, he was, you know, he was like, started wearing purple and this and that. It was like, hint, hint, hint. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but yes, that, you know, he, but he was kind of like, I'm powerful enough to come on. Let's make this happen. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, John, John the 12th was, uh, I, do you know about John the 12th? He was an interesting Pope to say the least. Um, I, I mean, I looked him up when I did those episodes, but boy, it's okay, been a while. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, he, um, he and Otto ended up having quite an interesting relationship, but basically he's described as the Caligula of the papacy by a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of writers and, um, in, based on the, the, crimes that are ascribed to him by Liutprand of Cremona, who is the only source mm-hmm. that writes about what happened. Because, you know, everyone else who's right, they're all clerics. All the chroniclers are clerics. Mm-hmm. And they're all loyal to Otto. But then, basically, Otto goes down and deposes the Pope. Yeah. <laughs> and so all the clerics are just like, and then Otto did some stuff. Have I told you about this fascinating bird I saw? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But Liutprand, of course, is just like, you know, John the Twelfth was committing incest and cutting off people's things and because uh-huh. that's just uh, the kind of yeah. guy he was. But um <laughs> more more loyal to Otto than the church, I guess. But uh-huh. um you know, it's an open question how much Liutprand can actually be trusted. But um so so there's that interesting relationship. And also in terms of foreshadowing future events, uh this somewhat dicey relationship between the papacy and the emperor that had been pretty all right <laughs> up until that point and would continue, would go back to being pretty all right yeah. for the next hundred years. But uh... yeah, basically <laughs> the, the thing is that it was always a power. It was, well, so it was a power struggle, but they also needed each other. And it's, right. it's this really weird dynamic. I'm, I'm a, I mean, if I ever get back to it, I will, dear listeners. I'll get back to history of Germany. Um, that that is a promise. But um, I'm wrapping up another show. But yeah, the the next episode is when. So it's the next dynasty. But history right. does repeat itself in the regard of between between emperor and pope in the Holy Roman Emperor em, Empire, because he's like, well, according to legend, he's like crawling on his hands and knees in a in a sh- right. hair shirt, asking for for forgiveness, what like the walk of Canossa or something. Yeah, is Henry the second. Henry the second. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah, it must be. Is it? Yeah, it must be. And uh, and this is kind of kind of this this back and forth of like Charlemagne had there's this drama and issues with the Pope and, and also the, the first, and they just, the fact is, is that they need each other. Right. I think Charlemagne didn't like that. He wanted to just crown himself emperor, but he also realized that honestly to be above the other nobility, because the nobility would just be like, Oh, you just, you called yourself that. Oh, you know what? Well, I'm yeah. dictator for life of the cheeseburger stand. That doesn't right. mean anything, but if the Pope crowns you, then that means something. And then, when when you get into the anti popes and the the weird drama of like emperor could just announce the next pope and they do sometimes, right. but then the thing is is that if they announce the pope that then crowns him it also means nothing. So the cardinals or not it wasn't even the cardinals cardinals necessarily yet, but the 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 church has to be okay with the pope and it has to be a pope that will crown him. So that there was a lot of politics. In yeah. play, and and so much so that you could spend lifetimes, um, like literally, you could spend lifetimes trying to figure out the yeah. the 
relationship between all the emperors and all the popes over time. It is just yeah. so convoluted and complicated. Um, <laughs> add the nobility in there. Add all the wars in there. Add all the, yeah. you know, it's just insane. To the, um, to the point where a lot of several decades in the 20th century, the main topic of discussion among historians of the Holy Roman Empire was that whether was, you know, taking over Italy a mistake <laughs> that, uh, you know, was it just like this unnecessary quagmire that the... Yeah, and you're tied down to, yeah, you have these responsibilities and the Italian, the northern Italian city-states didn't want anything to do with you and right. uh, you, had to, you had to deal with that extra factor of the Pope. Um, yeah. You know, but, f- French had their own unique issues and the, yes. when you talk about anti-popes and this and that, then, you know, you get, they have the more direct problems that the emperors yeah. had. But, um, and yeah. and then the other thing that you know just should be said is that every emperor, even for the next century when their rule was pretty secure, every emperor had a civil war at some point. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, they, oh yeah, they all had to fight, and it's just how secure could they possibly have been? Is this just uh, an an element of you know even without Italy? Would their yeah. rules have been secure? Uh, this is probably just an element of their the, the feudal yeah, the, political system. Charlemagne fought the Saxons for like thirty years, something like right. that. And now we're talking about the Saxon dynasty. They fought the Slavs for like thirty years, something like that. Like every yeah. year, they would just go in. I mean, it was just it was a joke. Like they'd go in and burn yeah. some towns, and then set up a garrison, and then they'd go back home, and the locals would come back and kill the garrison, and right. then they'd go back the next year and say, "Who killed the garrison? We want people." And of course. There is no guilty party. The actual guilty party is way east, even up right. in Denmark and all these other places. And they said, nope, well, we want, you know, we need to punish somebody. And so they eventually sacrifice right. some of the village members and the Saxons set up a new garrison. And that happened 30 years in a row until but, the castles well, got big enough, finally. But well, it's just... Yeah. What? Ultimately, though, that's part of the political economy of this era, because when you come in and, like, sack a village, well, yeah. you know, it doesn't matter who the guilty party is. Your soldiers got paid. That's exactly and right. And you got to, yeah. you know, show off as the, the war leader, the big, you know, you, you had a military victory. king. Yep. Yeah. So, and you can go oh, back yeah. to, you know, and I'm sure... There were elements of that on the other side as well, because that's usually what happens. These border situations, the people at the border end up profiting from the war, or at least the the aristocrats at the border end up profiting from the war immensely, and the you know the on the backs of the yeah the peasants, of course. But yeah, yeah, you know, I, I always come back to the the reavers in the border regions between England and Scotland uh, during you know a later period of the Middle Ages, but it, it seems to that pattern seems to fall mm-hmm. in throughout. The, the feudal period, yeah. the, the political economy of the of a feudal society seems to demand some sort of uh, aggressive military action under the guise of a defensive military action. As, as far Which, as the knights, yes, it's like, what? Well, why do you, why are you paying for the upkeep of your army if you're not doing anything with it? And it seems like at the drop of the hat, it'd just be count on count, you know, yeah. just burning the the villages and field. However, on the peasant level, I wonder. You know, where was the, because there's so many dialects and it's like, where was the real language barriers? Were there merchants going from like Slavic lands to, to Germanic, to German lands, like in the Middle Ages when one, one side was heathen, the other not. And the same with yeah. like Moorish Spain, the same with um, even the Byz- Byzantine Empire. And, you know, I'm, I'm always kind of just like, well, I bet there was some people there that, because there was, uh, you know. The, the roads were dangerous. The roads, first of yeah. all, barely existed. And so, I mean, Charlemagne started building roads again. 
the, the thing is that there was bandits, there was, you know, any nobleman's land you went through, you were just at their mercy. So I'm, I'm just imagining all these people like hiding in the woods night to night if, if they were travelers. And yeah. Um, so yeah, that probably did stymie trade, but also like that's the kind of stuff that other than They're like not- archaeological evidence, it wouldn't be written yeah. down as much. You wouldn't say like, well, oh, this Slavic woman married this, this German yeah. man. Uh, kind of well, thing, there but... there is definite evidence, written mm-hmm. and archaeological, that trade was going mm-hmm. on. As it far was as just, trade, it was there's only... archaeological evidence, yeah, but it, it, but um... it was just definitely in the like high value, low weight items. Mm-hmm. And w- what you saw over the course of the Middle Ages is uh, the development of you know a recognition that trade was sort of good for good for business, and the nobles started trying to protect it and everything, but very slow process. Yeah. But there was definitely communication happening, certainly at a, a disaggregate level, village just talking to the next village over. I mean, yeah, like market ta- market towns and all that did exist, and the, the Holy Roman... I mean, another thing, just within the Holy Roman Empire, like, by the time it collapses, there's, like, 1,100 different political entities with most yeah. of them different weights, weights and measurements and currencies <laughs> and all that stuff. So even forget about language barriers and, you know, religious differences. Like at some point they're all Christian. They're all kind of, they could all kind of understand each other using high German. And yet how do you pay for something that's not barter? Like how do you actually use (laughs) money if you're two or three states away then? Right. just, just well, crazy. that's why you know the development of those banking houses was. We're way ahead. Yeah, I know, time. I know. But <laughs> the, the point, yeah, the point is, from village to village, it's like you can't just go up and say, "I want a foot of this." It's you know, or or yeah. pay with your local. Well, the, the currency, yeah. The, the Holy Roman Empire had coinage minted and all that, but yeah. well, I love, I love the, I love the. Okay, what was a day in the life? You know, back in nine fifty five, like. But oh yeah, right. I know we could we could go out down some rabbit holes here. This so. is going to be like the next two years of my podcast, honestly, is going to be going through all this stuff, actually. But, but it's touched so, on a bunch of stuff. It's so I mean, interesting. Yeah, as far as I, I find myself, because I always think like, oh, I'm going to cover the high Middle Ages here and there. I'm going to cover this dynasty. But that's not what happens at all. The, the more I read about it, the more I'm like, oh, actually, what I need to be emphasizing is that it wasn't a big shift from one generation to the next. It was if you look at like 300 years, but that's what people do. They look at, you know, t- uh, 1000 AD and 1300 AD and say, oh, well, that's totally different. What what changed? And it's right. like, well, yeah, but over the generations, it's like, no, it's like the same culture. It might as well might as well have been the Romans and the Celts still, you right. know, as far as what what happens in the kitchen, um, <laughs> you know, like it's just yeah, it's yeah. all the same thing. And I mean, Germans had houses for. I mean, it was just it's like very modern living in a, in a like rural kind of way. And yeah. what you know, what is. And then I do a whole nother show on like history. The history of alchemy is one of my shows. And it's like just, and we I talk about the same geographic area. And it's like, well, this invention wasn't an overnight shift because no yeah. one knew about it because <laughs> like, you know, it's before the printing press or even yeah, the printing right. press <laughs> itself. Like it just, it was used to disseminate kind of like the internet is used for fake news. Right. It was just like that astrology and alchemy and Kabbalah and magic took off because of the printing right. press way before science did. So, right. okay, now we're getting off track. But, you know, looking well, no, at the actually, 10th century, like, you know, it's it's not that well, different than the than the 9th, not that different than the yeah. 11th. Um, well, so, so that's actually an interesting point because there's a big topic of conversation now amongst the historians in terms of 
it, it started out with this, you know, attempt to uh, do post-colonial history and uh-huh. the feeling that the whole label of Middle Ages was pejorative and maybe we should come up with something else. And that sort of didn't go anywhere because, like, who cares if they're offended? They're dead. Right. But a, a bigger question has been people going, well, 487, the end of the Western Roman Empire. Well, that's not really a good date the more we look at it. You know, the, a lot of the institutions kept going, like we said at right. the beginning of the episode, you know, uh, Congress goes away, but the police are still down the street. Mm-hmm. And then if you come at it from the other ang- angle, you know, what marks the start of modernity? And it's all these these social institutions that eventually came together to form the modern state system, like a standing army uh, and, and things like that, that when you start looking at where they came from, it pushes you further and further and further back until you're at 1300 or 1200 or 1100 and if you're going from the other end you know what marks the end of antiquity well 487 doesn't work so 500 600 700 yeah and then you come together in in the middle and do we even need to have a middle ages at this point certainly certainly no dark ages middle ages fine if you want to you know fine it's still a very like i mean the middle of what the middle of yeah. the birth of Christ to the year 2000. Okay. Right. Sure. That's a very, you know, it's a, it's a very like Judeo Christian way of looking at that, but okay. Um, but yeah, antiquity, like the classic period. I mean, all of those are just misnomers yeah. in a way. Yeah. And mod- modern, the, the early modern period just kind of cracks me up. Like who called yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, or the, or the Renaissance, I mean, the Renaissance kind of called themselves that and started right. calling the, the middle age or the medieval period, the medieval period or something, or even the right. dark ages, you know, it was like, right. yeah, the, the, the barbarians before us were the enlightened ones. Right. Okay. And, but... and now like, if you're just looking at militaries, like, well, what do you mean modern days? Because when, you know, we don't have even Napoleon's cavalry anymore. So maybe if you're talking about the, the 19th century, sure. You can look back at, Otto the first and the cavalry reforms and or Charlemagne right. and the cavalry reforms, but we don't use cavalry anymore. In fact, World War One isn't modern because it's all drone strikes <laughs> and this and that. Like French warfare? Are you kidding? Tanks? <laughs> who you know who has a battle of four hundred tanks anymore? So right. what is that? That word is meaningless. Oh well, you're, right. no, you're talking about postmodern. That's <laughs> meaning. <laughs> they they called it postmodern in the '60s, okay? So like yeah. or whenever. Like, so where just, where no, are we no. now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, we're the we're the, yeah. we're we're you know we're in the Star Trek age, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's just so they, I, I end up. You know, I'm probably going to keep using the term Middle Ages, but in my mind, one of the things that I've gotten from from doing all of this is that, to me, the Battle of Augsburg marks the end of late antiquity, <laughs> the end of the migration period. I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't argue. I mean... And, you know, to, to a certain extent, you know, the modern period kind of, in many ways, developed out of the medieval institutions and the feudal system. And so there's a real case to be made that you know, by going past the, the Battle of Augsburg, I'm I'm getting into early modernity. And yeah. uh, if anyone else asks me why I haven't gotten to the Reformation yet, that's going to be my answer. Well, I've, yeah, you know, because <laughs> looking at, looking at, looking at, I, I do a podcast in German about the U.S. And I was like, well, why do we do this and this and this? And why don't Europeans do this and this? And it's kind of like a lot of those answers do culturally, even culturally, they do go back to like feudalism. And mm-hmm. if you're talking about feudalism, you're talking about Charlemagne. And like, I have to explain that a bit because people are going to be like, what? You're calling Europe feudal? Well, no, but like, okay, the names, yeah, of regions is the yeah. Frankish cemetery, wherever the Franks slaughtered you. 
they kept the name and said, now we're the we're also the king of the Lombards. We're also right. the king of, you know, Italy or whatever. Kind of and, like how suburbs are named after the trees that yeah. got cut down to build the houses. Burgundy is where the Burgundians died. Burgundy right. Burgundy is not where the Burgundians <laughs> came from. They were a Germanic tribe, you know. So, yeah. uh, so Francia in, in Bavaria is very far from the original Belgian Belgium. So, but but on the other hand, it's like the the idea of it's nobility's land. Oh, there's so many examples of when Europe became democratic slowly over, you know, the various countries at different times. They kind of picked like for one thing, like their prison their prison like punishments and society and this and that they took the the soft ones for the nobility and right. democratically elected it for everybody that's why they're a little bit more <laughs> socialist a little bit more this and but you know if i got sent to germany if i got sent to prison in germany well they'd hook me up with a room that looks like it's out of an ikea catalog and there's no death <laughs> penalty and you know the food's better too yeah and and there's no gangs there's you know like yeah it's just like oh huh, that's kind of nice and as far as like hunting and fishing, well, that was never a big thing because that was always, it was always the nobility had the right to do that. Right. So it was kind of like, well, who are you that you go hunting? Like you're some, you know, fun yeah. so-and-so like, you know, whereas like my grandpa's the worst redneck ever and he, and he hunted, you know, so it's kind of <laughs> like coming from a different place. Right. Um, but yeah, you do see that. You see the, you, you could still kind of see that. Yeah. I mean, even yeah. Germans have the fun in their name if they were descended from nobility. So you can just tell that it's there and it's definitely cemented in this time. Charlemagne yeah. didn't start anything, but, you know, Charlemagne had some reforms. Call it the Carolingian Renaissance if you want, but an auto also. But it was just a slow move in that way. And it's so much of it's cultural and, and uh, just evolved yeah. over time. But, oh, yeah, if you look around, the, you can still see it. Hey, Augsburg's still there. Augsburg's yeah. still where it was. <laughs> so... Well, and then, so, you know, and this is going to be however long in the future, but one of the things that made me want to start doing this podcast was the realization at some point that so much of what shaped American history was the culture of England during the English Civil War, yeah. which was a direct result of, you know, the things that were going on at the same time in the Thirty Years' War. And that stuff, you know, the, the stuff with the Thirty Years' War and the, the Protestant Reformation is like barely covered in American school systems. And yet this is the cultural touchstones that the colonists who left England around that oh, yeah. time set up these colonies that were sort of this cultural time capsule of a of previous era of English history that when you got around to the revolution, you know, it's like they're speaking different languages from a cultural standpoint mm -hmm. because, you know, the British have kept going from where they left I, off and the, the American colonists are still talking about things that mattered, you know, 500 years ago. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, because I, I had that same realization when I was talking about the Amish and like, okay, let me tell the Germans who Amish and Mennonites are. And, and I was like, because they're Germans. But the thing is, is that in Germany, they wiped out the Anabaptists so thoroughly and so completely. That's yeah. why they all went to Pennsylvania. You know, we just yeah. walked, welcomed them in like, oh, yeah, hey, we need more colonists. We need more people to settle the <laughs> land. So we welcomed them in and they're still there. Yeah. But they're not in Germany anymore. They're just they right. were so completely annihilated and then finally kind of soaked up into like the more mainstream Calvinists and Lutherans and such. So I was like, yeah, I'm telling them a part of their lost history. You can come here and go see that old lifestyle in Ohio or Pennsylvania, but in Germany it is gone. Yeah. yeah. Always has been since 400 the, years. <laughs> so the, okay, you're going to, you're going to get to that. That's, that's yeah. all you. <laughs> yeah. I know you're getting um, there. Uh, and, you know, eventually I, I do hope to get to 
the epilogue of my show is going to be looking at the colonization and how all this stuff ended up moving into oh, American history and stuff. Yeah. And, you know, one of the, the big stories there actually in terms of the Amish is that they came over and settled in Pen- Western Pennsylvania. They were welcomed by the Quakers, but then the Quakers were too peaceful to actually help them out when the French and Indian Wars happened and they were getting slaughtered mm-hmm. by the Native mm-hmm. Americans. And the Quakers were just like, eh, we don't do war. Yep. You guys yep. are on your own. <laughs> yeah and the mennonites are like well we don't do worry we don't do that wait a minute yeah <laughs> someone someone do something about someone, this does, does anyone war does anyone war <laughs> this arrow in my back really hurts yeah and all, <laughs> meanwhile all the other white colonists are like oh did someone say war uh yeah over here we'll we'll come yeah <laughs> i mean this is a complete tangent now but yeah the, <laughs> we've the, gone off the, the most end. The most terrifying, frothing, radical, warlike colonists were the ones in New England, which is just hilarious in modern political context. But, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the people from Massachusetts and Connecticut had this massive military reputation at the time uh, to the point where, uh, do you know anything about the storming of Lewisburg? Like, no, probably not. Uh, in the, um, the war of Spanish succession or Austrian succession. Okay. yeah, yeah. It was a, one of these star forts in, in Nova Scotia, and mm-hmm. they just went at it without artillery, which is just suicide. That's, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> they, t- they took it. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Massive losses, but they yeah, took it. That's, yeah, the British that... handed it back. Huh. So anyway, I, I yeah. love these stories. I, I yeah, I mean, on the other side of the Revolutionary War is like the Hessians, and like I can't wait to do an episode on oh, yeah, the like, yeah. military. Like they bred mercenaries that that was their economy and it just blows my mind like i can't wait i mean we're both going to be talking about them i I think because i mean i'm going to be talking a lot about mercenaries when it comes to the see i'm uh, not i won't be there for another like i I mean at this rate that's the thing is i gotta retire my other show get back to it because otherwise it'll i mean yeah yeah, i'll talk about the hessians in like a decade or something but no (laughs) i yeah i I just got to get back to it but yeah well no i'm ways away it's gonna be it's probably two years out until i get to to yeah. this stuff, but uh, you know, in terms of the, the Swiss, the, the Catholic cantons, mm-hmm. uh, you know, supplying the military of the entirety of Europe, and then the the Germanic equivalents, I, I, mm-hmm. the Landschrecks. Yep. Uh, so, and the, the the importance of mercenaries to the development of standing armies and all this stuff is just uh, that's yeah. my bread and butter. I'm really yeah, looking especially forward to in the Thirty Years' War, where they're like, you know what? Let's never do this again. How about we have <laughs> because they just kill everybody. It just, I mean, there's no loyalty. Like, who cares? Or even switch switch sides, battle to battle. So, yeah, they're like, you know what? They, this probably isn't the best way to do war. <laughs> they have a different incentive system than what's necessarily good for my yeah. monarchy. Yeah. Anyway, I think that's covered everything that we could possibly cover. <laughs> Let's see. Okay, what's the summary? Okay, so so Lechfeld, so in school I was taught that it was this pivotal moment, that it was this land shed, landmark, whatever, event that, you know, changed, the, it started, it was, the, and literally, like, Setdayf called it the, the hour of birth of Germany. <laughs> right. The, the thing is, is that no one said the word Germany at that time. Right. No one. It was East Francia, if if even, you know, really even mentioned. It was, I mean, they might talk about Saxony and, and Swabia and all that. But, uh, yeah, they definitely didn't think it was a landmark event, like, as it was happening. There wasn't a guy in the but, front line holding a sword and the big shield going, Hey, Bob, I feel really German now. Yeah. Well, because, exactly. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, the Nazis liked all those nice little neat stories, the... 
the the Teutoburg Forest and the right. this one Lechfeld when they beat the Hungarians and blah blah blah. So, um, yeah, I mean, it has come up over and over as like this is you know the German brothers got together and they realized that you know they 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 united <laughs> against a common enemy and so. But that is kind of what happened, but yeah. <laughs> not the way that you read about in the I don't know twentieth right. century history books. Let's say, but yeah. you know it 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 is a, a nice convenient breaking point because after the rise of Otto, you know, the the political system of the East Frankish rump state, let's say, mm-hmm. did start to consolidate itself, and it did have a pretty good run for the next hundred years or and, so, and yeah. the, the, with the, the decline, you know, the Magyars weren't raiding anymore, the Vikings started to settle down pretty soon, you know, uh, Western <laughs> Francia could start getting its act together, Italy could start getting its act together, they started pushing back the Saracen raiders, and yeah. feudalism, as we really think about it, sort of had started to have the room to breathe and grow and yes. become like an organized system that wasn't getting knocked over every 30 minutes. Yeah. So wh- yeah, exactly. What is true is that forget that land shed event, but if you take the beginning of the, it's about a hundred year span. If you take the beginning of the Saxon dynasty and the, like Henry the Fowler and the end of the Saxon dynasty, then like Otto the third or even a Conrad maybe, <laughs> yeah. from Conrad the second or something. <laughs> um, but if, you, but if you take that whole span, then yes, then it's definitely, you can, you know, if you had a time machine and could go to the beginning and go to the end, you would see a difference because it's four generations yeah. of, or five generations, whatever, a vastly changing, like the church got so much yeah. more powerful and then became an enemy in the, in the next dynasty. And then you see castles definitely getting better. You definitely do see roads getting bigger and better and um you start to i I believe even it's that dynasty where the they the imperial insignia changes from a sword and a scepter to the the apple and the what scepter but (laughs) but i mean so they even tried to like symbolically differentiate themselves in some way which means you see a different charlemagne was just like okay what did the roman emperors do and i want to do that too (laughs) you know he would go around naming consuls and you know having i mean he was a what yeah i mean he had yeah he had like roman titles and this and that patricians and this and that so right saxon still used a lot of latin obviously so Right, it'd be I mean, you have to look. You have to know what to look for, but you'd see differences. You'd start so, to see uh, architect architectural differences in the churches and as they get bigger and that kind of thing. So you know, a, a big topic of discussion is is it it's a chicken and egg thing. You know, was it the efforts of the the people involved who caused this to happen, or was it the wider uh, contextual thing? And it basically doesn't matter if you're just saying that Augsburg is sort of a convenient point to look at and say that whatever the causes were, whatever the the effects were, here's a point. And if you look at the before times, then this was sort of going on. And if you look at the after times, things were a little bit different. And that's really all you can say about any mm-hmm. historic, specific historical event like that. But at the same time, in this specific historical event, it's dividing, you know, the migration period that started with like the Battle of Adrianople from mm-hmm. The, the development of, of a coherent feudal social order, if you yeah. will. But again, okay, so first you have these barbarian Franks, right? And the Ro- right. they beat the Roman, and then they settle down and want to be Roman. And then they're fighting the Saxons, and then the Saxons convert and settle down and want to be Frankish or Roman. Right. And then they start fighting the Hungarians. Century later, yeah. the Hungarians settle down. Then they go after the Slavs. Then the, the East Prussians. Then the, you know, the, the Vikings yeah. convert. So and it's they're, like... They're, 
reorganizing their landholding pattern based on Roman villa systems and, yeah, and calling it, them manners. But it always, it, yeah, it always does kind of over time. It gets lost, and you know they they think they're copying the Romans, and really they're doing something that some cleric told them who knows i mean yeah but oh yeah i mean one one difference you definitely see over time is like monasteries becoming like self-sufficient factories of goods right in a way that's like now you know it's almost like its own industrial revolution and that happened in this time for sure yeah and that's something that that if they're i mean dark i mean lindisfarne was 400 years a couple hundred years prior i mean but, yeah, but that's but that's that's British Isles. As far as Germany, definitely it was kind of the, there's monks putting order to you know clearing yeah. forests and um, and that's, producing goods out of raw materials. And even in Italy, actually, the, one of the big contributions of the Theophylact dynasty, who were the they were a bunch of strongmen who uh, ruled Rome through the popes. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a you know do what we say if you know what's mm-hmm. good for you kind of thing. One of their big contributions is that they founded a bunch of monasteries in sort of a ring around the city in concentric rings to just, and it wasn't that they were, you know, fortifications or anything, but they stabilized the economy and held yeah. down land, uh, and yep. made sure that the peasants were doing peasant things. Yep. <laughs> oh yeah. It, yeah. Well, it, it's kind of like adding a commercial district to your, so you have the market, you have the, right. you know, nobility is, is kind of just governing everything. But then now you, you added actually another, because the, the weird thing is, is something we don't, we don't maybe think about is, you know, if I, if I own a forest, if the, if it's my forest, why would I just use it for hunting? Why don't I actually do some forestry and sell lumber and make charcoal and, you know, get a whole industrial thing going? Well, the thing is, is that for a nobility that was beneath them, all you right. can really do is tax the peasants and the peasants didn't have anything. Because, right. you know, if, if you were into like uh, economics or, or into like manufacturing even, and you looked at the past, you're like, well, they, well, they didn't really utilize anything. Well, yeah, well, it was beneath them in a way. And, and they <laughs> did. And, yeah. But the ones that did were rebels well, or the nobility that, that published their own scientific works were like, oh, well, the, the, why are you yeah. becoming a lowly academic? You know, that's not your right. place. You're much better than that. <laughs> and, it, and it's just like, well, that's, that's a weird way of thinking. But they actually they had their place. And Otto and even some later ones, they they actually wrote they kind of started chiseling these laws into stone like mm-hmm. what's the role of a bishop what's the role of of you know the monastery as a whole or the church as a whole and what's the role of a king you know and and yeah. otto had some of these philosophical ideas and and we see him in later later kings too but yeah. like really even thinking about that like what you know what is our purpose here and the old tribal saxons probably never had that other than let's go kill the neighbors and take their swine <laughs> So, um, yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, <laughs> this has been really fun. Yeah, I know. We could I know I can tell we could just keep going forever. So. Oh, totally. Um. And we keep we keep stepping on the toes of stuff I want to cover in the next bunch of episodes. So, this uh this episode has been, you know, full of foreshadowing for there the next bunch of episodes for both of us, I'm sure. Uh thanks very much for for joining me and if people want to find your show, where can they they find you? Yeah, all my, all my stuff is at podcastnick.com. That's podcastnik.com. Um, I'll I'll be in Nuremberg end of October if you if there's just happens to be some some listeners over there. Uh, <laughs> so you'll find all the information for that at at podcastnick.com and I do uh, my newest show is Africa, a history. I wish I had more time, but like history of Germany, yeah. Bohemian, history of alchemy. Bohemian is about the Czech Republic and there's a lot of this like medieval stuff covered. Um, history of Germany is more chronological, so I'll I'll get to everything eventually. 
yeah, I do some some more shows in German. So I have stuff that keeps and, me busy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm. This is going to go on your feed as well. So I yeah. should probably. So I'm Benjamin Jacobs. I do Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation, uh, which you can find at wittenbergtowestphalia.weebly.com. And then I'm on Facebook and Twitter and various other sundry places, so you can check me out there. Actually, that, that's a good point, yeah, because we're, we're, we're the ones that are both part of Dark Myths and Agora, yeah. right? Actually, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think we're the, we're the only two people that are part of both of those networks. You can... So you can actually find us on any of those Facebook pages. Like we hang out on, we're actually pretty active on Facebook and, and we, we talk yes. to each other and talk to listeners and all that. Like either on the history podcast page or uh, there's a couple of groups we hang out in or the Agora page or the Dark Myths page. Yes. Um, you know, kind of see what we're up to and take a look at our other networked shows. Yes. Yeah. And uh, there's a bunch of great, you know, there's a bunch of crossover stuff on the Agora feed that yep. we both participate in. So check us out. This is, we have a lot of fun when we do these crossovers and, and this has been great. Actually, so. yeah, some of the crossovers are probably the best because like, oh yeah, you start <laughs> nerding out on these crand. I read that too. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. so thanks yeah. for joining me and, uh, and thank you for, for speaking with me for an hour and a half on a, a Sunday evening. Always, always, always a pleasure. Oh, you think we were done? After an hour and a half of what is normally a 20-minute show, did you think that I was just going to cut it there and have that be it? No, no. Because Travis Dow, in addition to being the insane creator of multiple podcasts, is also good friends with Der Budler, the creator of the Secret Cabinet podcast. Der Budler happened to be visiting Travis in a couple days after we recorded our conversation, and Travis went ahead and recorded an additional 17 minutes of content with Der Budler. And here it is! Enjoy. But now, don't listen to Benner myself about this topic. We, we have a real German here today, um, because I had, a, I had a buddy visiting me, one or the other listener might know him, because I translate his show into English as The Secret Cabinet, and he goes by Der Budla, who uh, visited me in California here. So I, since I have him here, I have him chained to my desk, chained to the microphone. I'm not sure how he feels about that, but... Uh, I got a couple of questions for him on, on how this battle is seen from the local perspective. Now, besides the, me translating the secret cabinet, Budler has been on the history of Germany before. He talked about, I went to Germany to talk about the sky disk of Nebra, and a Bronze Age artifact. And also, so he works in Wittenberg, which is uh, why he's also interesting for the Wittenberg to Westphalia Wars of the Reformation podcast. And he works in Wittenberg. And uh, I think he's been to Westphalia, so he's been from Wittenberg to Westphalia, so probably every other place too, but yeah. So the, the thing is, the first question has nothing to do with your historian or academic knowledge. On the contrary, when I was in school, I remember learning about this battle from my history teacher in Munich and saying that it was an important event and that it was the maybe the start of something you could call Germany and blah, blah, blah. Do you remember that? Not your personal opinion, but what did mm -hmm. your teacher say? How did you learn about it in school? 
Well, um, hi, Travis. Uh, thank you for having me here. Yeah. Um, actually, I'm not very sure at all how we dealt about that in, in uh, school. Uh, it mixes up a little bit in my memory um, with the things I learned in the seminary about this event. Okay, um, yeah. I had a, um, a whole seminary about uh, the Ottonians in the right. um, yeah. university. But so um, yeah, yeah, I think there are many people who claim this to be one of the birth hours of uh, Germany um, mm -hmm. could uh, look on that in that way because it changes yeah. quite a lot for middle Europe. Um, but yeah. still, um, uh, the people themselves wouldn't have thought themselves exactly as being, uh, Germans yeah. now or something different yeah. now. Um, mm -hmm. They were just uh, relieved that the, the battles were over or so. Yeah. Um, of course, this battle is only one of many battles. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So it's been probably more um, exaggerated in the, yeah. the chronicles. Kind of romanticized. Yeah. Romanticized. And, yeah, and yeah. Uh, people, like, especially in the chronicles, they liked to have events. Yes. Which, uh, Epochs. We could, talked about that. Yeah, yeah right. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. That, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. uh, which could help you to, to sort out. Yeah. Um, this the, this the happened before Augsburg. This happened after Augsburg. And then right. you know, like, yeah. ah, okay, yeah. so before Augsburg, there was Hungarian raids. After yeah. Augsburg, yeah. not. Yeah. So it's a nice, it's one nice date. Right. You know, one nice yeah. event. Um, it's funny that, that we don't call it Augsburg in Germany. We call yeah. it the Battle of Lechfeld. Yeah, right. Um, uh, probably is, Augsburg is more appropriate because we don't really know where this battle took place. Oh, there um, you go. Yeah, so okay. far, we don't have any evidence. Without, mm -hmm. um, only the written sources tells us that okay. somewhere on the Lechfeld was a huge area. Um, yeah, right. Uh, I think only a couple of years ago, there was an... Hobby archaeologist, as they called himself. Okay. Um, uh, well, a uh, uh, grave digger, or how do you call right. it? Right, uh, grave robber, maybe. Uh, Raver, yeah. something like that, uh, who just um, uh, went. Treasure hunter. Treasure hunter, yeah. That's yeah, it. That's, uh, uh, I don't like this uh, expression, yeah. hobby archaeologist, like hobby hobby surgeon or so. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, mm -hmm. well. Um, yeah, uh, well, if he found uh, pieces of uh, horse gear. Uh, okay. From from an avar, uh, yeah. looking like a yeah. varic uh, um, soldier or something. So there could is be, evidence yeah. that could be something there, but could be coming from it, somewhere it else. It also they yeah. fled, and then there was deaths right. along there. So it could right. be the main battle. Yeah, it could be yeah. some little skirmish, you know, on so the retreat. So we don't really or, know. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So you, you need the bone-smelling dogs. To, uh, yes, sir. If we talk we about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, one, one question I had was. Um, we talked a little bit about, okay, what did change eventually? The Hungarians with Stephen I and all these, but like a century later. But what was, so right after the battle, the Hungarians fled back to Hungary. What was the exact consequences right after for the Hungarians? Uh, it was important because in the battle, especially since Otto sent his, um, his riders uh, after, after the, yeah. the, the fleeing army, um, and he, they, they uh, killed lots of their officers of their of their high rank uh, mm -hmm. uh, soldiers. So um, suddenly the army was without any leaders. It, yeah, um, exactly. And that yeah. meant a great deal because they had to sort out again. And 
um, so the, the the rates ceased for a long time and um, probably yes. this meant also an, an initiative to, to settle down in the place which is now Maybe a Hungary. Maybe better to farm yeah. Hungary than, you know, raid right. Western right. Europe. Yeah, some, yeah. You know, some of those thoughts started right. to happen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you mentioned, yeah, so you, you mentioned like, okay, this was maybe not a landmark event. It was one of many battles, obviously. Right, right. Mm -hmm. um, and we also talked mm -hmm. about there were some other factors in Europe happening that would make mm -hmm. it harder for the Hungarians to attack anyways. And right. yeah. the Hungarians were um, already maybe not going as far. Maybe, you know, in Italy, mm -hmm. they stopped raiding. Before, like the quotation you read at the beginning, mm -hmm. you know, they stopped going into Thrace already before in Italy. Right. Now, in Germany also, there was things changing. So mm. it wasn't like villages on an open plain. Mm. They were taking precautions against Hungarians before. They did. Or, uh, yeah. That happened all already under uh, Henry I, uh, right. who um, looked on um, places like Cologne and so on, said, well, they have, why are they still there? Because they have the strong walls. Okay. Yep. And he ordered... Um, uh, in his, in his, uh, especially in Saxony, but then um, he convinced the other uh, dukes in Germany to do the same in their territories to build castle-like structures, which yeah. were called uh, fleeing castles, well, right. Yeah, and um, this was to to take the momentum out of the raids from the younger uh, from the Avars. Build, build some fallout uh, shelters. Fall, uh, yeah, shelters. Uh, <laughs> tornado bunkers. Put, put all your yeah. livestock in there. Just leave yeah. the village. So they, they, yeah, um, they can burn the village. Um, yeah, th then they, they could only find uh, um, well the lost, lost uh, the, the empty buildings it there. Would, so yeah. would be nothing for no them goods, to, to get. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and this took the momentum out of there. Um, right. Yeah. And in in uh, um, one of, one big step was of course the year nine hundred twenty six when Henry captured one of the leading uh, yeah, okay. Hungarian leaders there mm -hmm. and. Um, so the first deal could be made was exactly with the that was the first um, negotiation, like even diplomatic yes. talk. It's like right. okay, yes. yeah, yeah, first yeah. time that could be happened. It's, it's just on a battlefield. It was right. like finally, yeah. like okay, let's uh, let's negotiate. Yeah, right. Uh, right. But even then, um, this took only well, even a year since Henry was feeling strong enough to attack the Hungarians on the open field. Right. And yeah. um, the, the famous Battle of Riade, which is mm -hmm. even more obscure because we don't even know where this Riade might have been. Okay, okay, yeah. Um, but um, still, this was the first defeat of the Hungarian riders. So because, already, uh, yeah, 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 okay. Yeah. Because beforehand, they were just using uh, very fast, very quick uh, raids into... <coughs> Into mm -hmm. the the landscape, into the villages, yeah. going there, hitting, uh, getting everything you could get, um, and uh, be way b before any uh, opposing army yep. could, could uh, yeah. stop you. Yeah. And that uh, rather they made the first mistake to to um, uh, fight against the the heavy um, okay. uh, armored yep. German soldiers on the battlefield. Uh -huh. The Hungarians were uh, riding very fast horses, were light armored, mm -hmm. and only uh, the bows, which mm -hmm. were yeah. very, very efficient in uh, fast uh, yeah. attacks. At a distance and yeah, very yeah. fast. But not in yeah. the open right. battle. Yeah. Um, so yeah. um, that was the first defeat. And Otto, uh, on, in the Augsburg battle, the Lechfeld battle, mm -hmm. uh, was using the same strategy uh, to, to force mm -hmm. them into battle on the yeah. open We talked about field. that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, that, yeah, so yeah. part of the, the, the tactics or right. strategy yeah, yeah. was, yep. Mm -hmm. 
get them where we want to fight them. And then, you know, they had he heavy shields and everything, right. so they right. were ready. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. But uh, you, you told um, you were asking for for the results of that. Mm -hmm. um, of course, it means um, um, well years now of relative peace for mm -hmm. uh, Middle yep. Europe. Uh, it means that um, the people themselves um, <laughs> were thinking themselves into be in a kind of apocalyptic yes, times. The end of times. They, they yeah, just yeah. realized, okay, maybe the world is not going to end uh, yeah. after all. Maybe we can deal uh, with this we after could all. Deal with that, yeah, and yeah. Uh, of course, then the Ottonian Renaissance took place. Um, right. Yep. Uh, Otto became emperor. Um, he uh -huh. could now had, has now standing ground. He was the defender the, of the church, like Karl Martel. Yes, yeah, yeah, and exactly. of course he was with a with a attacks against the Hungarians, he was uh, now having the lords and the, the dukes behind him. Yes, yeah. Which was a great problem for the kings before him. For instance, Conrad I, who yeah. had great struggle to get the support of the dukes of yeah. Germany yeah. before. Yep, everybody, yeah. Why should Conrad be king? I could be king. You know, every, everybody, you know, what's his, what, yes. what makes him so special? You right, know? and so. he was the first uh, first non-Frankish king. So right. It was even harder to, yeah. beforehand it was easy. Okay, you've got one of you're the still, Carolingians. You're still so related to Charlemagne somehow, right. yeah. Yeah, yeah. They all were related to Charlemagne. But, they, <laughs> but we, st we, are, we all are related yeah. to Carolingians. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so. Every nobility in Europe, for sure. Yeah, Yeah, but, but every one of us is uh, still, did you? Okay, uh, related? Okay. Okay. Um, just because of the, our gene pool, our, yeah. which we share, um, this, the probability okay. to have an an ancestor which is relating uh, to uh, the genes it, of Calvania, so it could it's be one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, because I, I have someone from Frankfurt, anyways. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Otherwise. Enough of my ancestors are really from the sticks in Scotland and Ireland right, that yeah. maybe not, but mm -hmm. probably yes, you know. Uh, anyways, my, my Frank Furter great-grandfather probably, right, yeah, right, he's yeah. probably <laughs> somehow tied to Charles. Somehow, yeah. yeah. Um, another, another funny thing we talked about, which I know you can say, you can speak to, was the Spear of Destiny. Uh, Laurentius's, uh, yeah. the, the spear that, now, we mentioned it, Otto had it, yeah. uh, Charles IV had it in Prague, yeah. uh, now it's in the yeah. Schatzkammer in Vienna. But where did Otto get it from? Otto got that um, when he probably, um, uh, I heard yeah. a speech about it, uh, fang nochmal an, sorry. Otto probably got that from his first wife, Edita. Um, she was the first wife before mm -hmm. he became emperor. Mm -hmm. uh, she died early, so um, that's why she never got to be empress, but yeah. uh, she was always queen. And she brought that probably as a uh, gift for for, for yeah. a wedding. Um, yeah, uh, a wedding gift. Allegedly, it was the the lance which uh, was used by, um, from a from yeah. Roman soldier to to pierce Test the side. Test if Jesus was dead. Was dead yeah. yeah, and somehow it's related to the legend of Saint Moritz, uh, Mauritius, yeah. Yeah. Um, which was a great uh, saint for for the Ottonians. Mm -hmm. um, Okay, yeah. With lots of Mauritius churches. So where did Edita uh, come from? She, Edita she came from uh, Wessex, I think. Um, okay, so she came from England, the, the spirit England. Of, yeah. She brought that probably with her, with this legend. Um, uh, as we know now, it's uh, it's not from uh, from. Uh, I was going to say, century. as an archaeologist, the spear is <laughs> undoubtedly, it's from the first century in the Middle East, Roman spear, um, correct? Um, <laughs> None nearly, of that. Nearly. Yeah, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not at all. Uh, it's, I think it's, Eighth century, eighth or ninth um, Frankish. Yeah, uh, it's called Charlemagne's um, time. Charlemagne's yeah, time. Yeah. yeah, it's called a 
bekannte Winged, winged uh, okay, Spear. Okay, yeah. Um, winged Land or Winged and Spear. It was altered quite, quite a great deal. It was, there you uh, go. Now okay. it has um, some uh, nail looking things. We mentioned to it. that. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, nails from the cross uh, and there's some gold. Yeah, yeah. And probably not the nails themselves, but probably oh, okay. just a symbol for the nails, right. which were okay. um, probably um, only particles worked into yes. the metal. Yes. So. Okay, okay. And it's yeah. even broken. Um, yep. And uh, funnily, fu funny thing is that there were copies uh, even yeah. in time of okay. Otto. Uh, who gave that after um, even to um, well it came to Hungary once as Stephen, yeah. Stephen the first got one. So funnily uh, enough, yeah, there's also the, almost the identical, so, yeah, and yeah. it also has the gold. I mean, it also has yeah, the same modification, complete, complete replica. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 like you would do today. Um, yeah. it, looking like the same. Of course, you can see it's not the original. Yeah, because it's, yeah. Uh, it's just uh, yeah, yeah, made made. So up. It's, it's like okay, well, we, we defeated you a hundred years ago using this lance and Lechfeld. Right. Yeah. Here's the replica gift to the first Christian Hungarian right. king. You yeah, know, yeah, like it's, it's very diplomatic. Sign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's it's important because um well it's um was important symbol for for Germany because that's why it's um came into the the, the treasure um of the, the Kleine yeah. Odeon as we call it in Germany, um which is now in Vienna, as you yeah. told me earlier, yeah. uh, together with the crown, together yep. with the, the sword and uh, the sphere. Yeah. Uh, and many things more. Um yeah, yeah. So, but the crown jewels. Yeah, it's yeah, important the, the whole... because after um, uh, the years after that, uh, it was important who had the stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Who had the crown um, mm -hmm. was rightful, rightful king. Yeah, um, there were some several. You probably will talk about that later in later episodes. Uh, whether you have the crown or not um, makes you make your position as a new king yep. more firm or yep. uh, more unstable. Mm -hmm. uh, where even people made replicas and so and and so on. It's, it's yeah. very funny. Uh, so yeah. If you look only on this detail, it's uh, you can tell lots. There's a of whole story, story yeah. about that. I mean, that is interesting. Okay, here's yeah. this one little artifact, and like it's been in possession of all these emperors and it really you know uh, it's like the pretenders of emperors we you right. know so it's yeah. important for that uh, idea even yeah. if it wasn't really a holy and relic or anything Not at all, but, yeah. uh, any other copies what other there, there's there's even modern replicas and everything around oh, of here, course here there there. Are. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I nearly got one by myself it was on ebay once and it <laughs> looked like 19th century ish or something okay i okay. was very so, tempted okay. to buy that but um, more uh, modern replica i was a student then and i thought well it's I, not in, I don't have if that I have much the Spear money. of Destiny, yeah, yeah, but, but yeah, 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 could be, would, would be nice to have. Um, yeah, well, of course, there were but that's um, funny. many, yeah. many replicas. Probably this was made for uh, 19th century for um, for an exhi exhibition, yeah, or something. something you could show the public while their original right, is protected, right? right yeah. Something like that. It looked yeah. very, very old. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it was aged, probably, uh, yeah, 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 yeah like, but it was not of clearly not an original from right. this, uh, from yeah. this time um, so there there's a Budler's two cents you can find more on that so if you speak German he does a he's an archaeologist and he does a show on archaeology which is at angegraben.de and I think if you do speak German you already know that so whatever um, but then also if you want to hear his stories he's the he's the guy that writes creates and produces das geheime Kabinett, which I translate as the secret cabinet and you can you can find that on podcastnick.com if you want to hear the messed up things that come out of his mind. <laughs> Thanks for plugging. <laughs> there you go. Okay, back to the show.
we shall also bestow honors upon Earl Joe, the horrifically sainted. Ooh, bad luck there, Joe. And last but not least, we do praise Sir... <laughs> and last but... <laughs> Stop looking at me. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.